Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me today as we continue our investigation into Sonny and Klaus von Bülow. In the last few weeks, we have made it through their history, individually and as a couple, and his attempted murder schemes, her irreversible coma, and that first 1982 trial when Klaus von Bülow was found guilty of those 1979 and 1980 crimes. Klaus sentenced to 30 years of hard time in that 1982 trial, but money and power and privilege can buy a different kind of justice, and so it goes. Klaus von Bülow walking around out on some hefty bail money has found his new and wealthy lady love, Andrea Reynolds, and will soon be making quite a connection with the appellate lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, who will argue Klaus von Bülow's case to bring about that second trial. This is where we are in this episode, friends. But before we begin, we have some kind friends of the podcast to thank. Huge shout-outs to our newest supporters over at Patreon.com, Holly T., Tammy F., JLZ, and EVD. Holy cats, y'all are amazing. I'm really grateful to you and all the supporters over in the Patreon community getting ad-free and early episodes, not done yet, bonus episodes too. The last of those, last week, number 65, was all about the shady details of a sex worker and a priest that conspire with Klaus von Bülow to get the second trial. The side query doesn't make it into von Bülow's second trial, but Dominic Dunn sure was on the beat in his reporting of this story, and that means we're here on it at Done and Done. Thanks again for tuning in today, friends, where we are arriving unto the second trial of Klaus von Bülow. How do we get there? And what happens during this trial? Our man Nick gets the entire story. Let's investigate. Dominic Dunn described the second trial. He wrote that it was like a football game between the New York Jets and Providence High School. And to be fair, this 1985 trial will continue to put fuel into Dominic Dunn's personal quest for justice that has been brewing inside of him in the beginning of this, his third act. This isn't the first trial where Dominic Dunn will see that the system is not fair and treats the wealthy. Well, differently. Klaus von Bülow will find Alan Dershowitz, and with the help of Andrea Reynolds, they aim to appeal Klaus's original guilty verdict. The questions really here are, was that first trial conducted properly? Did the media portrayal of Klaus von Bülow affect the jury's decision? And what about the chain of evidence on that black bag that everyone in Rhode Island has touched by now? Alan Dershowitz wants the notes from the attorney that Allah and Alexander went to in the very beginning. These will prove revealing as insulin wasn't written in those initial notes, but as the kid's attorney says, it didn't need to be. Everybody knew what was going on. Alan Dershowitz and his ragtag 
University Bunch will break into teams to counter and attack all of the reasons for conviction from that first trial. Again, you can see that story within the movie Reversal of Fortune. It is an interesting movie as it comes to the legal plays, and to be fair, I can see Alan Dershowitz's arguments for the appeal. The medical evidence used within that first trial is in dispute. There have been multiple tests on Sonny's fluid showing alternate levels of insulin at alternate times. The laboratories that the drugs and needles were tested in are, of course, suspect for contamination. There are legal grounds to stand on here for an appeal, hence the reversal of the first verdict. This happens in 1984. Mostly one on mistakes from the prosecution, but alas, the verdict is overturned nonetheless. Money can buy you a lot. But here the state of Rhode Island is kind of mad about it, and they are going to retry Klaus von Bülow again in 1985. And if you thought the first trial was a scene, who the second one? Oh my. Again, it's amateur hour for the prosecution. Not that they didn't try, but against Klaus von Bülow's high-powered lawyers, with the advantage of now excluding the black bag from evidence, as well as some other evidence that was brought forward in the first trial, this really is going to be kids' play for this defense team. But the trial does commence. Klaus von Bülow asks how he has endured through all of it. And he says he would not have been able to face it without the loyalty of his friends. Uh, yeah, he's got some friends. Good friends, like Andrea Reynolds. And here's the thing. With the second trial happening, Dominic Dunn is not done yet about the subject of Andrea Reynolds and his reporting of her from that 1985 retrial. Let's take a look and see what he has to say. From Fatal Charm, Dominic Dunn writes, Clearly the star of the second trial was Mrs. Reynolds, although she was, much to her chagrin, not allowed to sit in the courtroom. She was here, there, and everywhere else, though, known to every employee in the Biltmore Plaza Hotel, to all the cab drivers of Providence, and to each member of the press. Forty-eight years old, she was born in Hungary and raised and educated in Switzerland, she speaks seven languages, vivacious, curvaceous, and flirtatious. She seems a sort of latter-day Gabor, with a determination factor somewhere on the scale between Imelda Marcos and Leona Helmsley. She was openly loathed by Klaus von Bülow's lawyers long before she told a reporter from People magazine that the jury didn't like Thomas Puccio. They draw away from him when he approaches the jury box. Puccio, Von Bülow's tough defense attorney, gained national recognition as the abscam prosecutor. Friends claim Mrs. Reynolds knew more about the first trial than the lawyers did. One reporter counted 29 pages of Sonny Von Bülow's medical records spread out on tables and chairs in her suite. She was Klaus von Bülow's most passionate defender, fighting to vindicate her man and at the same time establishing a name for herself. It was she, according to Sheldon Reynolds, who got most of the affidavits from prominent people 
saying that Sonny Von Bulow was an alcoholic. Von Bulow said about her, I realize that the Hungarian hussar has, often to one's total exhaustion, whipped everybody, including me, into activity. Nowhere was this more evident than in Von Bulow's dealings with the media. During the first trial in Newport, Von Bulow sometimes spoke to members of the press in the corridors of the courthouse during recesses, but he never socialized with them. During the second trial in Providence, with Mrs. Reynolds at the helm, he openly courted the media with masterly manipulation. They were on a first-name basis with most of the members, dined regularly with them in various restaurants of Providence, and drove at least one reporter to New York in their station wagon for the weekend, dazzling them all, or so they thought, with their glamour, while always stipulating that anything they said was strictly off the record. Mrs. Reynolds often telephoned reporters if she didn't like the way they reported on the trial, and occasionally went over their heads to their editors. When Tony Burton wrote in the New York Daily News that while the jury was sequestered in the Holiday Inn, cut off from family and friends, the defendant and his lady friend were dining nightly in the best restaurants in Providence. Mrs. Reynolds called him a commie pinko faggot. Eventually, reporters grew sick of the off-the-record quotes fed to them by the pair. One foreign journalist baited Mrs. Reynolds by asking her, Come on, Andrea, what kind of fuck is Klaus? She replied without a second's hesitation, How can you expect me to answer that? If I tell you he's good, there will be even more women after him than there already are. And if I tell you he's no good, how does that make me look? Barred from the courtroom, Mrs. Reynolds watched the trial in the truck of Cable News Network, which carried the proceedings live gavel to gavel. There she was able to see exactly what went on in the courtroom without all the commercials and cutaways. To the dismay of the CNN personnel, she slowly began to take over the small booth. When Alexander von Ausberg's lawyer entered one day, he was met by Mrs. Reynolds. When Judge Corrine Grand called to the booth, Mrs. Reynolds answered the telephone. Mrs. Reynolds was then asked not to return. <laughs> she begged to be readmitted for just one more day in order to watch a hearing for one of the several mistrials requested by the defense, but CNN declined. Even a maid gets two weeks' notice, snapped Mrs. Reynolds. Mrs. Reynolds' style was a curious mixture of femininity and rough language. Her stories about the von Ausberg children, whom she had never met, were scurrilous. Everyone who ever went to Xenon knows all about them, she said. On a secret tape submitted to producers of 60 Minutes, she referred to Alexander as an asshole. One day I asked her, is it true that you shot your first husband? Absolutely not. That's a pretty well circulated story about you, Andrea. It wasn't my first husband, it was my second husband, she said. And I didn't shoot him, he shot himself when I left him. I'm the one who saved him, not the one who shot him. This is quite a sorted cast of characters, is it not, friends? Dunn writes just a little bit more here. One night, the telephone rang in my hotel room in Providence. It was Mrs. Reynolds. 
She asked me not to mention something she had told me about one of her husbands, and I agreed not to. I talk too much when I'm with you, she said. I'm going to have to arrange for you to have a little accident. We both laughed and hung up. That is only part of the dish that Dominic Dunn is getting in his reporting on this trial. Now's a great time for a quick break. When we come back, we are going to get into more of his reporting from Fatal Charm. Back in a moment. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? Oh, our man Nick is everywhere in this trial. He's getting all of the dish. Dunn continues writing in Fatal Charm about these 1985 events. Every Friday afternoon during the trial, the Von Bulow station wagon was packed and ready to depart the instant court adjourned. The doorman of the Biltmore Plaza Hotel held open the rear door, and the golden retriever, Tiger Lily, bolted into her regular place, eager to be gone. And Mrs. Reynolds, behind the wheel, waved gaily to photographers, Von Bulow wearing one of his handsomely cut, cuffed-sleeved, fullard-lined tweed jackets, slipped into the front seat beside her, and they took off to New York. After the third week of the trial, they gave a christening party for Mrs. Reynolds's granddaughter, Eliza McCarthy. Von Bulow was the godfather, and the infant wore the christening dress Cosima had worn. Mrs. Reynolds, in a hat of red poppies, with a fingertip veil and a blue high-fashion dress, nipped into Mortimer's for a celebratory drink between the religious service at St. Jean-Baptiste Church and the seated lunch for twenty at the apartment, cold poached salmon, cucumber salad, and champagne, served by three waiters in addition to Ty, the Chinese butler. Mrs. Reynolds interrupted Von Bulow's toast to say, Klaus, Annie Marie Bismarck is calling from London. Excuse me, said the host, leaving the table to talk with Princess Von Bismarck, one of his strongest supporters. He's innocent, said the woman next to me. It's those awful drugged-out children who have brought all this on and framed him. I can't sleep nights worrying about Klaus. Hm, I guarantee you, lady, Klaus is not losing any sleep thinking about you at night. Klaus von Bülow is thinking about himself and, well, his reputation. Dominic continues, The only outward indication that Klaus von Bülow was ever under severe strain was a habit he developed of stretching his neck and jutting out his chin at the same time, like a horse trying to throw the bit out of its mouth, or a man resisting a noose. Whatever one felt personally about the guilt or innocence of the man— one could not deny his charm, which was enormous, in a European, upper-class, courtly sort of way. One of the first calls he made after his arrest was to John Aspinall, his English gambler friend, to say that, alas, he would not be able to attend the ball Aspinall and his wife were giving that weekend in Kent. <laughs> Priorities. 
Again, we have seen John Aspinall back in the Lord Lucan arc, and John Aspinall will be coming back around again in our investigation. Dunn continues about the charm of Klaus von Bülow. The slightest incident would trigger an inexhaustible supply of heavy furniture anecdotes about the titled The Famous and the Wealthy, his standard points of reference. He would regale you with the fact that Christian VII of Denmark, whose portrait hangs in his drawing room, died of syphilis and drink, or that the marble of his dining table as blue as malachite is green is called azurite. I hate malachite, don't you? he asked. It reminds me of the fellow who was so proud of his malachite cufflinks until a Russian Grand Duke said to him, Ah, yes, I used to have a staircase made of that. <laughs> Once when a waiter poured him wine, he sniffed it, sipped it, savored it, nodded his approval of it, and then continued with the anecdote he was telling about the dowager Marchioness of Dufferin and Ava concerning Sonny von Bülow's maid, Maria Schralheimer, who testified against him in both trials. I know how difficult it is to get a good maid, Maureen said, but this is ridiculous. He would cite as his Newport supporters Alan Price Jones, Oatsy Charles, Mr. and Mrs. John Winslow, and especially Anne Brown, the septuagenarian dowager Mrs. John Nicholas Brown, born a kinsolving, who took the stand in von Bülow's behalf as a character witness at the first trial and became his most devoted champion in the deeply divided summer colony. At a dinner in Palm Beach last winter given by Mr. and Mrs. Walter Gubelman, also of Newport, Mrs. Brown announced that her faith in Klaus von Bülow remained undiminished, and she asked the other guests to raise their glasses in a toast to him. No one rose to join her. High society lines are being drawn here. This is the case that divides Newport, at least in the 1980s, similar to Anne and Billy Woodward and how that case did it in the 1950s. But Dominic Dunn isn't done getting all the interesting pieces of this saga. He's getting all the inside scoop. Dominic continues writing, Von Bülow continued to wear the wedding ring from his marriage to Sonny, although he said any number of times that they would have divorced if what happened had not happened. The ring was, in fact, returned to him before the first trial by Alexandra Isles, his former mistress, whose appearance at that trial helped to convict him and whose melodramatic appearance at the second trial again turned sentiment against him. Mrs. Isles had had the wedding ring in her possession because it embarrassed her to have him wear it during the course of their affair. Sometimes he spoke of Sonny as if she were a beloved late wife. That was one of Sonny's favorite books, he said one day, when he saw me reading the Raj Quartet during a break in the jury selection. Another time at the apartment on Fifth Avenue, he saw me looking at the silver-framed photograph of her, taken by Horst. God, she was beautiful, he said quietly. Were you ever in love with Sonny? I asked. Oh, yes, very much so, he replied in his dark baritone. 
I'm really not letting out any secrets when I say that Sonny and I were geographically apart, but in every other sense together, for two years before we got married. We did mention Alexandra Isles, the mistress, and with the prosecution not being able to use much of what was available to them within the first trial, I am sad to say it is again on Alexandra Isles to come back for the second trial to cement that case against Klaus for the state of Rhode Island. Dominic Dunn has much to say about Klaus von Bülow's former mistress. We're going to unpack that right after a quick break. So much to unpack in this second trial. Dunn will continue writing from Fatal Charm. No one else in the trial came near to the sheer dramatic power of Alexandra Isles. Often described in the media as a soap opera actress, the patrician Mrs. Isles attended the same schools as Sonny Von Bulow, Chapin, and St. Timothy's. Her mother, the Countess Mab Moltke, was born into the Wilson family of San Francisco, whose fortune diminished now traces its roots back to the Comstock load. Mrs. Isles is divorced from Philip Isles, a member of the wealthy Lehman banking family. His father changed the name from Ickelheimer in the 1950s. Following their divorce, Isles married the former wife of Dr. Richard Raskind, who changed his name to Renee Richards when he became a woman. Deeply wounded by the hostile reaction she received at the end of the first trial, Von Bülow's former mistress fled the country, rather than testify again, believing, she said, that a videotape of her testimony in the first trial could be used in the second. At a New York party, Mrs. Isles's friend, John Simon, told me that under no condition would she return. He claimed, and later repeated to the press, that she did not want her son, Adam, 15, a student at Groton, to suffer the embarrassment of having his mother on the stand as the mistress and motive of the defendant in an attempted murder trial, that her mother was ill and had begged her not to take the stand, that she was terrified of being cross-examined by Thomas Puccio because she knew Von Bülow's lawyer would expose her private life, and that she had received threatening letters from Von Bülow warning her not to testify. Von Bülow vehemently and angrily denied this, claiming he had not been in touch with her since the first trial. Mrs. Isles, who was reported to be hiding out at Forest Mare, an exclusive fat farm in England, flew from Frankfurt, Germany, the day after the von Ausberg children made their plea for her to return. There is a portion of that letter written by Alexander von Ausberg and Annie Laurie Knessel that appeared in the newsletter of an organization known as Justice for Surviving Victims, Incorporated. Alexander and Annie Laurie, who is known as Allah, remained remote figures throughout most of the second trial, but then they emerged in a blaze of worldwide publicity at a press conference in which they begged their stepfather's former mistress, Alexandra Isles, who had fled the country to come forward and provide critical testimony. Quote, we realize that coming forward the last time was an act of courage on your part. We ask that you summon that same courage again. After conferring with the prosecution team in Boston, 
She spent the night under an assumed name in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, watching a Celtics game with her son. The next morning, she testified that Von Bulow had called her at her mother's house in Ireland after the first coma to say that he had lain on the bed next to his wife for hours waiting for her to die, but that at the last minute, he had not been able to go through with it and had called the doctor. Feisty and unwavering, she withstood the pummeling of Thomas Puccio. When he asked her to explain how she could have continued an affair with the man she suspected of trying to kill his wife, she shouted, Have you ever been in love? And then added, I doubt it. Alexander Isles really did provide for a lot of dramatic moments in the second trial. And it is this particular moment with Puccio and Alexander Isles that I think does become the standout moment. Again, here she's asked by Puccio, like you certainly can't believe he tried to kill Sonny all the way back in December 1979 or you wouldn't have continued to associate with him. Is that true? Isn't that true? I mean, scene stealer here, Alexandra sighs, says, I'm ashamed to say it is not true. You wrote this letter saying you wanted, and here, Alexandra, Isles interrupts Puccio with this, have you ever been in love? She snickers, I doubt it. But you do some crazy things. Ah, it's just amazing. Scene stealer. So, how does Andrea Reynolds respond to Alexandra Isles? Dominic Dunn reveals that too, writing, Mrs. Reynolds was openly contemptuous of Mrs. Isles. Speaking of the jury, she said to me, They had been told Klaus was consumed by so much passion he was willing to kill his wife and get her money so that he could marry Alexandra Isles. In real life, two days after the end of the first trial, he and I fell in love with each other. Later, the press said that she bared her claws and declared that Alexandra Isles had had two or three men at a time. This is really nasty stuff, but our man Nick isn't done giving us the delicious gossip. He reports, Did you see yourself on Dan Rather last night? I asked Andrea Reynolds the morning after CBS had run a long sequence of the trial, showing her watching Alexandra Isles, Von Bulow's mistress before her testify against him. No, darling, I didn't know it was on, but so many people have been filming me. Can you imagine if I spent my days seeing if I can see myself on TV? Hm, how did I look? Oh, Andrea Reynolds, it is sad to see how badly it is going to go for her in the future. Dominic Dunn will add here, Mrs. Isles had no comment to make about Mrs. Reynolds. Dominic Dunn is getting all the inside info. He will also reveal in an ironic twist here that on the day that Alexandra Isles returned to the United States to testify against Von Bulow, Cosima graduated from Brooks School. She was the only member of the graduating class with no relatives present, but her classmates rallied behind her and cheered loudly when she received her diploma. Cosima is Sonny's youngest child, and the two older children are the ones working for justice on behalf of their mother. During this trial, Dominic Dunn will get to know Alla and Alexander, too. Dominic Dunn writes, Sonny's children, by her first marriage, backed by their maternal grandmother, Annie Laurie Aitken, who died last year, 
undertook the original investigation of their stepfather and hired former New York District Attorney Richard Koo to confirm their suspicions. Jonathan Houston, Executive Director of Justice Assistance in Providence, brought me together with Ala Knissel early in the trial. We met for the first time in the New York apartment of Pamela Combmale, a close friend of Sonny Von Bulow's and the cousin of another ill-fated heiress, Barbara Hutton. Married to an Austrian, the lovely Alla Knissel was pregnant with her second child when we met. Her brother, who was equally good-looking, graduated from Brown University in 1983 and works in the retirement division of E.F. Hutton. Deeply devoted to their mother, they acknowledged that she and Von Bülow were happy for many years and that they themselves had had affection for him. Their mother, they said, preferred home life to social life, and they reminisced about family meals and going to films together and lying on their mother's bed watching television. Happier times from the recollection of Sonny's children. More to come on those kids in the next episode. Dominic Dunn is really gaining access in this reporting that is unparalleled. We're going to wind this episode down with Dominic Dunn recalling a conversation he had with Klaus when I foreshadow to poor Andrea Reynolds. Dominic Dunn writes, Are you in love with Andrea? I asked Von Bulow one Sunday morning late in the trial when we were sitting on a bench in Central Park. His eyes were closed. He was catching the warm May rays of the sun on his face. I love Andrea, he replied slowly, measuring his words. I find this very hard. Being in love is very different from loving somebody. There has to be the right timing and the right climate. The climate and the timing are wrong. I just don't have enough left for the enthusiasm and recklessness and carefreeness that is inherent in falling in love. I am a man with a noose around my neck. Ain't that the truth? Klaus von Bülow is a man with a noose around his neck, but again, at what cost justice? At this point in our investigation, the jury is out for deliberation, and during that time, our man Nick gets up to quite a bit. That episode is coming for you Thursday here on the main feed, in a bit of a double drop on Done and Done here this week. That Thursday episode will be available for you early and ad-free on Monday if you are a Patreon subscriber at the $2 level. Again, enormous thanks to all Patreon supporters. Your support is most of what allows me to keep making Done and Done a thing. It is truly appreciated. You are appreciated. Thank you so much for coming to... Spend your time with me today for telling your friends about Done and Done, for your kind reviews, for your kind emails. You rock. Until we meet again to talk about what exactly we get up to when the jury is out, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Done and Done Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.